Sir Henry Vardon, KCB, electrician to the Admiralty, whose title, as everybody knows, was gazetted some six weeks since, is at this moment the youngest living member of the British knighthood. He is now only just thirty, and he has obtained his present high distinction by those remarkable inventions of his in the matter of electrical signaling and lighthouse arrangements which have been so much talked about in nature this year and which gained him the gold medal of the Royal Society in 1881. Lady Vardon is one of the youngest and prettiest hostesses in London, and if you would care to hear the history of their courtship here it is. When Harry Vardon left Oxford, only seven years ago, none of his friends could imagine what he meant by throwing up all his chances of university success. The son of a poor country parson in Devonshire, who had strained his little income to the uttermost to send him to college, Vardon of Magdalen had done credit to his father and himself in all the schools. He gained the best demyship of his year, got a first in classical mods, and then unaccountably took to reading science, in which he carried everything before him. At the end of his four years, he walked into a scientific fellowship at Balliol as a matter of course, and then, after twelve months' residence, he suddenly surprised the world of Oxford by accepting a tutorship to the young Earl of Surrey, at that time, as you doubtless remember, a minor, aged about sixteen. But Harry Vardon had good reasons of his own for taking this tutorship. Six months after he became a fellow of Balliol, the old vicar had died unexpectedly, leaving his only other child, Edith, alone and unprovided for, as was indeed natural, for the expenses of Harry's college life had quite eaten up the meager savings of twenty years at Little Hinton. In order to provide a home for Edith, it was necessary that Harry should find something or other to do which would bring in an immediate income. Schoolmastering, that refuge of the destitute graduate, was not much to his mind, and so when the senior tutor of Boniface wrote a little note to ask whether he would care to accept the charge of a cub nobleman, as he disrespectfully phrased it, Harry jumped at the offer and took the proposed salary of four hundred l a year with the greatest alacrity. That would far more than suffice for all Edith's simple needs, and he himself could live upon the proceeds of his fellowship, besides finding time to continue his electrical researches for I will not disguise the fact that Harry only accepted the cub nobleman as a stop-gap, and that he meant even then to make his fortune in the end by those splendid electrical discoveries, which will undoubtedly immortalize his name in future ages. It was summer term when the appointment was made, and the Surrey people, who were poor for their station, had just gone down to Colliford Abbey, the family seat, in the valley of the Axe near Seton. You have visited the house, I dare say open to visitors every Tuesday, when the family is absent a fine somewhat modernized mansion, with some good perpendicular work about it still, in spite of the havoc wrought in it by Inigo Jones, who converted the chapel and refectory of the old Cistercians into a banqueting hall and ballroom for the first Lord Surrey of the present creation. It was lovely weather when Harry Vardon went down there, and the abbey, and the terrace, and the park, and the beautiful valley beyond were looking their very best. Harry fell in love with the view at once, and almost fell in love with the inmates too at the first glance. Lady Surrey, the mother, 
was sitting on a garden seat in front of the house as the carriage, which met him at Colliford Station, drove up to the door. She was much younger and more beautiful than Harry had at all expected. He had pictured the dowager to himself as a stately old lady of sixty, with white hair and a grand manner, instead of which he found himself face to face with a well-preserved beauty of something less than forty, not above medium height, and still strikingly pretty in a round-faced, mature, but very delicate fashion. She had wavy chestnut hair, regular features, an exquisite set of pearly teeth, full cheeks whose natural roses were perhaps just a trifle increased by not wholly ungraceful art, and above all a lovely complexion quite unspoilt as yet by years. She was dressed as such a person should be dressed, with no affectation of girlishness, but in the style that best shows off right beauty and a womanly figure. Harry was always a very impressionable fellow, and I really believe that if Lady Surrey had been alone he would have fallen over head and ears in love with her at first sight. But there was something which kept him from falling in love at once with Lady Surrey, and that was the girl who sat half reclining on a tiger skin at her feet, with a little sketching tablet on her lap. He could hardly take full stock of the mother, because he was so busy looking at the daughter as well. I shall not attempt to describe Lady Gladys Durant. All pretty girls fall under one of some half-dozen heads, and description at best can really do no more than classify them. Lady Gladys belonged to the tall and graceful aristocratic class, and she was a good specimen of the type at seventeen. Not that Harry Vardon fell in love with her at once, he was really in the pleasing condition of Captain MacHeath, too much engaged in looking at two pretty women to be capable even mentally of making a choice between them. Mother and daughter were both almost equally beautiful, each in her own distinct style. The countess half rose to greet him at his condescension on the part of a countess to notice the tutor at all, I believe, but though I am no lover of lords myself, I will do the Durants the justice to say that their treatment of Harry was always the very kindliest that could possibly be expected from people of their ideas and traditions. Mr. Vardon, she said interrogatively, as she held out her hand to the new tutor. Harry bowed assent. I'm glad you have such a lovely day to make your first acquaintance with Colliford. It's a pretty place, isn't it? Gladys, this is Mr. Vardon, who is kindly going to take charge of Surrey for us. I'm afraid you don't know what you're going to undertake, said Gladys, smiling and holding out her hand. He's a dreadful pickle. Do you know this part of the world before, Mr. Vardon? Not just hereabouts, Harry answered, my father's parish was in North Devon, but I know the greater part of the county very well. That's a good thing, said Gladys quickly, we're all Devonshire people here, and we believe in the county with all our hearts. I wish Surrey took his title from it. It's so absurd to take your title from a place you don't care about only because you've got land there. I love Devonshire people best of any. Mr. Vardon would probably like to see his rooms, said the Countess. Parker, will you show him up? The rooms were everything that Harry could wish. There was a prettily furnished sitting room for himself on the front, looking across the terrace, with a view of the valley and the sea in the distance, there was a study next door, for tutor and pupil to work in, 
there was a cheerful little bedroom behind, and downstairs at the back there was the large bare room for which Harry had specially stipulated, wherein to put his electrical apparatus, for he meant to experiment and work busily at his own subject in his spare time. There was a special servant, too, told off to wait upon him, and altogether Harry felt that if only the social position could be made endurable, he could live very comfortably for a year or two at Colliford Abbey. There are some men who could never stand such a life at all. There are others who can stand it because they can stand anything. But Harry Vardon belonged to neither class. He was one of those who feel at home in most places and who can get on in all society alike. In the first place, he was one of the handsomest fellows you ever saw, with large dark eyes and that particular black mustache that no woman can ever resist. Then again he was tall and had a good presence, which impressed even those most dangerous of critics for a private tutor, the footman. Moreover, he was clever, chatty, and agreeable, and it never entered into his head that he was not conferring some distinction upon the Surrey family by consenting to be teacher to their young Lord Lingwich, indeed, was after all the sober fact. The train was in a little before seven, and there was a bit of a drive from the station, so that Harry had only just had time to dress for dinner when the gong sounded. In the drawing-room he met his future pupil, a good-looking, high-spirited, but evidently lazy boy of sixteen. The family was alone, so the Earl took down his mother, while Harry gave his arm to Lady Gladys. Before dinner was over, the new tutor had taken the measure of the trio pretty accurately. The countess was clever, that was certain, she took an interest in books and in art, and she could talk lightly, but well upon most current topics in the easy sparkling style of a woman of the world. Gladys was clever too, though not booky, she was full of sketching and music, and was delighted to hear that Harry could paint a little in watercolors, besides being the owner of a good violin. As to the boy, his fancy clearly ran for the most part to dogs, guns, and cricket, and indeed, though he was no doubt a very important person as a future member of the British legislature, I think for the purposes of the present story, which is mainly concerned with Harry Vardon's fortunes, we may safely leave him out of consideration. Harry taught him as much as he could be induced to learn for an hour or two every morning and looked after him as far as possible when he was anywhere within hearing throughout the rest of the day, but as the lad was almost always out around the place somewhere with a gamekeeper or a stable boy, he hardly entered practically into the current of Harry's life at all, outside the regular hours of study. As a matter of fact, he never learnt much from anybody or did anything worth speaking of, but he has since married a Birmingham heiress with a million or so of her own and is now one of the most rising young members of the House of Lords.